1: And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of The New Yorker magazine. On this program, we invite a poet to choose a poem from the New Yorker Archive to read and discuss. Then, they read one of their own poems that's been published in the magazine. My guest today is David Baker, who has received honors and awards from the Guggenheim Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Theodore Rutke Memorial Foundation. He served as poetry editor of the Kenyon Review for more than 25 years, and he teaches at Denison University in Ohio. Welcome, David. Thanks for being here today. Thanks, Kevin. I'm really pleased to join you. So the first poem you've selected to read is In Passing by Stanley Plumley. Tell us, what drew you to this particular poem while you were surfing through the archives? There's so many things. I could talk about this for quite a while. I have my own New Yorker archives,
1: I should tell you. The first magazine I subscribed to when I was a kid in college was The New Yorker. In this is like nineteen seventy-six or nineteen seventy-seven. I had no money, but I was starting to write poems and I thought, okay, gotta get the New Yorker. And I started to cut poems out of the magazine. And this poem <laughs> by Stanley Plumley in passing was one of the poems that I cut out of the magazine and stuck in his book, Summer Celestial. It was June of 1983. I I love this poem. I love Stanley's work. I'm doing quite a bit of work with his poems these days, probably putting a collected together for him, a collected poems, maybe doing something with his essays, maybe his letters. And I am gearing up to write an essay on wonder and I'm gonna write about awe and the sublime. And this poem seems to be one of the best examples I can find of something like a sublime Configuration in contemporary poetry. Plus, it's just gorgeous. I love the language. I love his music.
0: Well, let's listen to the poem. This is David Baker reading In Passing by Stanley Plumley. In Passing.
1: On the Canadian side, we're standing far enough away. The falls look like photography. The roar, a radio. In the real rain, so vertical it fuses with the air, the boat below us is starting for the caves. Everyone on deck is dressed in black, braced for weather and crossing against the current of the river. They seem lost in the gorge dimensions of the place, then, in fog, in a moment, gone. In the Chekhov story... The lovers live in a cloud, above the sheer witness of a valley. They call it circumstance, they look up at the open wing of the sky, or they look down into the future. Death is a power like any other pool of the earth. The people in the rain gear with the cameras want to see it from the inside, from behind, from the dark, looking into the light. They want to take its picture, give it size. How much easier to get lost in the gradations of a large and yellow leaf drifting its goodbye down one side of the gorge. There is almost nothing that does not signal loneliness, than loveliness, than something connecting all we will become, all around us, the luminous passage of the air, the flat, wet gold of the leaves. I will never love you more than at this moment, here, in October, the new rain rising slowly from the river.
0: That was in passing by Stanley Plumley, which was published in the June 20th, 1983 issue of The New Yorker. That poem feels so contemporary and so of the moment because it does things that I think a lot of poets do these days, which is move from one moment to another far off seeming moment, back to the moment. Poets have always done this, but there's something about that skip, that gap, that leap. I'm not sure how to name it. Uh, that's an indent on the page. In the Chekhov story, the lovers live in a cloud. What do you make of that leap, let's call it? Well, that's a great question. Um, The poem is very
1: of a piece. It's very fluid. And by that, I think I mean the style, the syntax, the voice is one continuous instrument. But you're right. It's sort of dazzling when you look at the number of narrative circumstances and references and what really dazzles me, the number of changes of perspective. Stanley was writing about that as a lyric tactic in the 70s, something he called the prose lyric, which is, according to Stanley, how a lyric poem can be made to configure complicated narratives. He makes that first big break just exactly where you said in that weird line that drops down and introduces the Chekhov passage. It's a funny poem because the poem moves laterally in those long lines with a kind of leisurely pace, yet it's about things that go up and down, falling. And the <laughs> first the first spill is that Chekhov narrative. And then he gives us this great big line, death is a power like any other pull of the earth. Then another turn when the people are thinking about photography, the whole poem is is photographic or painterly. He's talking about something being of huge scale, of tiny scale, to look at something from the inside, from behind it, from up and down, all this consideration. And then there's a moment when the poem kind of talks about its own thematic concerns. There's almost nothing that does not signal loneliness than loveliness. And then another turn toward the last (laughs) couple of couplets, when he's talking again about the situation of the lovers, it's remarkable how many things are braided by that, right, right. that voice.
0: Well, I love the, the, some of the terms you used, uh, braiding, uh, spilling over. I think that the poem is very much interested in that. For me, you know, it gets me when you have that wonderful alliteration, the roar a radio, you know, what a great phrase. And it's followed by in the real rain. Uh, so vertical it fuses with the air which of course is both talking about reality but also that if you've been to the falls there's this spray that you encounter that feels rain like it's a lot of water you know and um and as as he says, everyone on deck is dressed in black, braced for weather and crossing against the current of the river. Uh, one can't help but think of Dante or uh, acts of mourning in this uh, forecasting of what's to come, which is that line you mentioned, death is a power like any other pull of the earth, but it's paired with the people in the rain gear and the camera want to see it. That's amazing. From the inside, from behind, from the dark looking into the light. And of course between this idea of these two things that are paired in these couplets, death and then the it, which, you know, he makes both death and the falls. Um, That's a really terrific uh, moment too.
1: Absolutely right. That spillage is an interesting thing. He postpones that all the couplets are closed at the beginning of the poem. Mm, Every couplet is in a period. And then there's this first turn. Um, They look up at the open wing of the sky the people in the rain gear where the cameras want to see it, that's the first big and jammed line. And from then on, it gets a little more loose. Everything is moving down, the water, the leaf, the people's desire to leap, to jump, until the very end when that little bit of mist that you're talking about is rising back up. There's a kind of rejuvenative, mm-hmm. hopeful moment in there. I was thinking about, you were talking about the roar of radio. I got crazy about this poem at some point and began to notice those coupled sounds in each line, yeah. falls, photography, roar, radio, reel, rain, boat, below it. That's the sort of coupling of alliteration from Anglo-Saxon poetry. And he's doing those in half lines through the first half of the poem. Really a beautiful effect.
0: Yeah, it is. Those Anglo-Saxon words, too. Um, but even the later on where it's, Death is a power like any other pull of the earth, the people and the rain gear with the cameras want to see it. You know, there's a kind of uh, roar, if if you will, in the poem. That er is in the last line of the poem, again, that
1: closes it, the real, the new rain rising slowly from the river. For all his visual capabilities, Stanley was an art major in college and then an art history major before he changed to English. He he wanted to be a painter and he he told me once i i can't draw so i couldn't do it for for all the visual stuff he's got this beautiful musician's ear for for the sounds of letters
0: well i think these leaps these spills i think they appeal to us because they feel like how life can kind of feel maybe as a modern person walking around which is to say one, even in the midst of such natural beauty, is thinking about photography, is thinking about literature, is connected to the kind of representations, let's call it, of life as we enter life. Is that something you think happens in the poem?
1: I think that's what the poem's about. I think you're exactly right. We go to a place, even a corny place like Niagara Falls, a place full of clichés because it is so beautiful and we are drawn there. We're often drawn there with our beloveds. This is a love poem as well as it is a a poem about dying or death or erasure. We go there because we love the beauty of the spectacle and it scares us. That terror of being so close to the edge, of walking out, holding onto the railing, wherever we go to some sort of huge overlook Um, is part of the the narrative formula of the sublime. We see the beautiful thing. We get closer to the beautiful thing. Rilke says, every angel's terrifying. We get scared. And part of our fear is that we'd like to step off the edge. We could do Mm. that. We could imagine, I want to fly. It would only last five seconds, but I would know something in those five seconds that I will never know any other way. And the Mm. thing that scares us is our own cognitive desire to go inside that beauty, or to jump. And then we step back, we restore our stability. I mean, that's what ecstasy means, to be out of one's position, ecstasis, out of place. And it's that restoring of our footing, grabbing hold of the hand railing again, or stepping back from the edge, that restores us to our stable selves, our social selves. That whole narrative is um, clarified in this poem. Can you tell I'm getting ready to write about it? (laughs) (laughs) You're the world's expert right now on, uh, you know, all of this.
0: It's like reading Tintern Abbey and looking down that big expanse. Well, it's a romantic poem, big R romantic in that way, right? And it's also a lower R romantic. Right. And I wondered while you were talking about the sublime, is the beloved another thing that grounds the speaker or us? I don't know if the
1: beloved grounds the speaker or terrifies or probably both. And it's this evasive paradox that the poem is about. And especially in that ending, in that declaration, I will never love you more than at this moment, which seems like a magnitude. I love you as big as as Niagara Falls. And this is endless. But if you hear it another way, it's also an admission or an apology in the future I won't love you this much. Uh, it's sort of anticipatory of something falling mm. or breaking apart or failing. It's sort of like a prophecy. I hear those two things equally in that last sentence.
0: Well, sort of the lovers uh, from the Chekhov story who live in a cloud above the sheer witness of a valley. What beautiful line! And then they call it circumstance. They look up at the open wing of the sky, or they look down into the future. That disorientation, I think, is so powerful in the, in the poem because there's something about the sublime, uh, about uh, love even, that can be disorienting. And he's made it here both treacherous and kind of um, circumstance. Like, it's almost like an accident. Or fate. This is the definition of fate. And, yeah. I mean... Fates an accident if it's bad, you know, it's like the definition (laughs) of tragedies when I fall down, comedies when you fall down. I want to ask about two things. One is, uh, and maybe this more an observation, which is it really does that great thing of starting in the middle, you know, on the Canadian side. Right. It's not, you know, a a lesser poem or poet would, you know, explain Niagara Falls. I don't even think it says Niagara uh, in the poem. It just says Mm -hmm. the falls. It really is, is... Well done, I think. And and I, I love that kind of sense of place, but also of, it's not quite displacement, but just jumping in, you know, and it, it speaks to some of the leaping you're talking about, uh, both through the poem, but also the leap into the sublime that you've referenced so nicely.
1: That's right. The beginning is a way of telling us there is a long prehistory to this. A whole lot of stuff has happened before we're beginning now. And the poem begins... In this sort of explosive way, it doesn't lead up to anything. It doesn't prepare. It doesn't give us the first paragraph of introduction. We're there at a critical moment. We're standing far enough away, and there we are. And as we read the poem, we begin to fill in the blanks of what some of those prior things right. are. Like there's this relationship. There's this reference to the Chekhov story. I think I found the Chekhov story. I think it's a story <laughs> called the, the Lady with the Dog, which is a love story about sure. two adulterers. And it ends very badly, which is, yeah, a, right. again, one of those shadows that helps me figure out what he means at the ending. This is not going to turn right. out well. <laughs>
0: That leads me to two things. Sorry. Now I have a, th- <laughs> a for. I was going for a twofer. But the eye isn't in the poem, really, except as an EYE, as a visual eye, a narrator, if you will, stitching these things together, it earns that ending in such a different way than if it's like, I was thinking (laughs) you were there, we were there, you know, instead it's like out of the blue, but of course it's a love poem. As you said, of course, there's someone there. You don't go to the falls necessarily solo, you know, It, it has this kind of social feel to it, but it's also the lovers are a version of the I and the you, um, but there's always a kind of beloved, even if the beloved is this inanimate thing of the falls or the sublime or beauty. And so it's it's lovely how by delaying that, it allows a few beloveds to come before, if you know what I mean.
1: I do. I, I think you're right um, that announcement of the first-person singular at the very end is kind of a surprise. It's extremely hard in contemporary poems to speak in the first-person plural. There are a lot of vexations for making the claims of a collective. We do this, we do that. It's one of the reasons I love the poem. It's this, this old kind of odic memory of exaltation and speaking for the mass, I mean, even if we were to go to Niagara Falls by ourselves, we're still with all the others there. It's a collective spectacle. It's about us going there. This poem has every pronoun in it that you'd ever want. First person, second person, third person, (laughs) singular, plural, they're all there. Um, It's a very social poem, though it seems to be so intimate, so whispered. Yeah, yeah.
0: I'm very curious about the title. That's yeah. the last thing I want to ask about, because I must confess the title feels far less grand than the things we're talking about, though it seems playful in the ways that the poem is. How do you take this in passing? Uh, is it a kind of tossed off gesture? Or is it saying about passing and passing away and passing through and uh, passing over all those kind of meanings? How do you take it?
1: Stanley never did anything accidentally or casually in a poem. It has a kind of purposeful, multiple meaning. Um, Its first meaning is, just as you said, sort of offhand. We say something in passing. Oh, it's a passing comment. And then on closer speculation, if we pass something, we're going past it. We're going beyond it. That's the gerund function. This is in passing. As we fall, as we pass each other. And finally, we say about someone that they passed um, as an elegiac summary. And this is about the act of sort of imagining not being here. It's Keatsian posthumous existence in some way. This is us as we are dying from this moment.
0: I love that kind of echoing quality that a good title has. It does a lot of work, yeah. Yeah. Well, now in our October thirty-first, twenty twenty two issue, the New Yorker published your poem, Six Notes, which we'll hear you read momentarily. Is there anything you'd like to tell us about the poem first?
1: Well, there's quite a bit of Stanley Plumley in it in, in its phrasing, I guess. Um, a poet probably ought to be the last authority on his or her own work. I don't know. Um it is intimidating to me to make fairly bold political claims in a lyric poem. Um, This one does. I am shocked by gun violence. I looked just the other day, Kevin, there have been 13,959 deaths this year by gun violence. There have been 181 episodes of mass shooting just this year. I, I don't know how to do that in a poem to talk about that. And I also don't know how I could write a poem without trying to talk about things, big social things like that. Um, so that was in my mind. Um, and to agree a little bit with, with John Berryman, who's got a line in this poem, um, we must not say so, he says in one of his weird dream songs. He's talking about boredom life, friends, is boring, we must not say so. And then he goes on to talk about being boring after he says we
0: shouldn't talk about it. Literature is boring, especially great literature. Especially great literature. What a great line. Yeah. Well, here's David Baker reading his poem, Six Notes. Six Notes. Come down
1: to us. Come down with your song, little Wren. The world is in pieces. We must not say so. In the dark hours, in the nearest branches, I hear you thrum. The deer come to die beside the creek. Mud, the color of walnut stain. Reek and runoff from the new development there, beyond the woods. Rib and skull, no jawbone. It makes a soundless scream. I hope for peace when I walk here, sometimes in the dark. If not peace, clarity. If not clarity, at least a place to breathe. Else I'll scream too. Come down, little dove, far above the bay. I hear you in a thirsty palm or Up beyond the rocks, a windy reed of song. Blue sun, blue cloud above the sweeping bay. Sometimes we have to say so. I don't know how. A man, a boy, an anger with no tongue took his automatic rifle to school today. The report we hear, discharge, echo, is the sound of sorrow, reloading. No matter where we walk, we hear it call, little wing, little creek, little bay, dark hour. Come down with your beaks of mourning
0: and blood. That was six notes I thought since we ended with the title of Stanley's poem, maybe we could start with your title, because these are more than notes to my mind, but I would think that the notes form, let's call it, it lets you talk speculatively and say things like, sometimes we have to say so, I don't know how. And then these kind of recastings, which I think are quite beautiful in the poem, a man, a boy, and anger with no tongue. These are all the same, but also kind of getting more specific are getting more pertinent to the moment that ends the poem and and echoes throughout. Um, I wonder how that notes came to you. Is that a form you've employed before? Were you thinking about it in this way or it just how it felt for you?
1: You know, like Stanley's title, I hope this one's doing several things. It is notational. My poems begin, I take notes, we all do. Um, And it happens that there are six sections in this poem, so six notes. But really dominant in the poem to me is the sound of those birds, the songs that the birds sing and the different notes that, say, a wren or a dove makes or a gun. And there are sort of six dominant sounds or absences of sound in this poem, six notes to that melody or to that chord, or if not sound, then that soundless scream. So I was thinking about that too, sort of musical notes and the notational and the sectional as I was trying to figure out the title.
0: I love how Uh, you knit the notes together. There is this we, which you said it was impossible to put in a poem or, or dangerous somehow, but I think it works really well um, because this is we as a society, um, but also, as you've sort of said, this poetic we of this lineage of ly- lyric or poetry. And to reference Berryman is also to reference some of that kind of sense of violence that he talks about, where he says, my mother has your shotgun about his father uh, who killed himself. There's this kind of echo uh, in the poem. I'm really interested in, you kind of refer to them these kind of moments of let's call them emptiness rib and skull no jawbone it makes a soundless scream i hope for peace when i walk here sometimes in the dark and then it allows you to say these kind of big things that i'm not sure i can get away if not peace clarity i can't put clarity in a poem how did that come for you and and is that part of your own kinds of leaps i guess so it- you know, the poem requires that sort of hollowing
1: out of landscape or of of self. I don't think it's impossible to speak in the we, by the way. I, I, I do think it's a real vexation. It's a problem. Yes, yes. Which sir. is then attractive for me to try to figure out how to do it. How do I write about gun violence? Um, I don't, I have no idea. So let's try that. How do I write about global warming? I don't know. Let's try that. And so I guess it does have to do with well, thinking about Stanley's poem, sort of stepping off that edge, This I'm going to say a very big thing and it could fall flat. It very well might. But if I don't take the step, then I'm just crawling along.
0: And do you see that as by invoking the birds, the wren, the dove, you know, which of course is a symbol of peace, a symbol of sort of the flood and, and possibility after, I suppose. Is that Something you're aware of? I, something at some point I'm thinking about, yeah. I think about
1: that as an invocation at the very beginning come down to us, as we say in Greek epic to the gods come down to us. Um, but here it's not so much an invocation as a sort of desperate a beseeching, please come down here. And the birds also signal the different landscapes. The poem's all over the place. It's along a creek in the woods, listening to this wren. It's someplace near the sea on a little island where the doves are above the palm trees. It moves around quite a bit, and the, and the birds are specific to those locations. They help make that turn as well. So another thing yeah. from Stanley's poem about braiding those things together.
0: I think they also feel like fragment to me, Right. Uh, and shoring up these fragment against the ruin. It, it isn't quite as set in one place uh, as we are saying, but it also feels like the fluidity you were complimenting and and paying attention to in Plumley. It's purposely shorter phrases to me, shorter little punchy moments. It's couplets, similarly, very different couplets. They feel, I think, partially because of the sections, which I love having these these sort of two couplets and then a section break. They kind of um are jagged, you know, and you're not afraid to have a dash or two, my favorite form of punctuation uh, as well. And you end the poem with a dash. And so I wonder about how you think about fragment, but also what it means for you to have that dash at the end.
1: Each of the sections ends in that dash, and there's something unfinished there. There's something bitten off or incomplete or, again, stepping off the edge of something without the terminal completion of a, of a period. I like them. I'm a little too attracted to them sometimes, but I, I liked them in this poem. Um, I liked how they worked. I, I worked hard on these little phrases and little clauses rather than a big, beautiful thing. I wanted that kind of more
0: um, scattered Movement in the syntax. I wondered, since we talked about the beloved, mm-hmm. is there a beloved in this poem? Well, there always is. Is it clarity? I mean, is it is it the you? Is it the the thing that you are begging to come down, beseeching, as you put it, to come down? Is it the bird? And maybe it moves around, but I am just curious if there is. Well,
1: I don't know grammatically. In the we, there has to be an I and a and a you to make a we if this is a beloved, this is the ode's problem. The beloved is sort of the whole community, all of us. And as the poem says, no matter where we walk, we're on this little island, we're walking along this creek, we're in this real estate development. No matter where we walk, we hear it call. This sound of the bird, which is beautiful and terrible at the end. Those beaks have blood on them. Those gods Mm -hmm. have come down to us and look what they've done. There's something about the the destroyer or the rough beast or something feasting on this blood.
0: A terrible angel, perhaps. There he is again. Yeah. Or she. Yeah. I um, love that sort of little wing, little Creek, little Bay, dark hour. You know, you've set us up and then change with the little. And uh, I think it really rises and falls throughout the poem. The poem I think when I first encountered it, I think I thought of it as, as more descent, But I, hearing it again, I, I feel like it, it really is uh, rising and falling, those notes. It may be.
1: I, I, I would like to think that that is the case. That little phrase of the little wing, the little creek is sort of a catalog of the different characters in the poem or the different locations in the poem. All of these together, this is always the case. Come down wherever you are.
0: I want to ask you about editing because yeah. you're, you've you edited for a long time. You edited me, and uh, which I appreciate and thank you. But I think it isn't always and it isn't always now that people have such a long tenure at, at such a space. Tell us what editing is like for you, what it means, and sort of what you saw over time, if you can cast your eye back. Yeah, over a lot of years, I was the poetry editor
1: and then the editor-in-chief of... Uh magazine called Quarterly West um, when I was in school at Utah before I came to Ohio in 1983 and started working for the Kenyon Review. So, you know, I was probably poetry editor of Kenyon Review for 26 or 27 years, but I was with the magazine for actually quite a lot longer. Um, Things changed (laughs) over, over those years. It's staggering the numbers of people sending manuscripts now. I mean, you know this more than anybody in the universe, I imagine. And those numbers are magnified by the really bad behavior of simultaneously submitting a poem, I don't know, five, 10, 15 places at once. Um, It's impossible to keep up. I I ended up getting really worn out by trying to do that. When I was doing the Kenyon Review poetry full-time, when i say full time i had no release time to do it i didn't work for kenyon i didn't make a salary there i just read the poems and there was a lot of times when i read them all and then couldn't now having said that the bad news the good news is that there's so much good work of so many kinds so many voices so many inclusions it it used to be the case that you know this is 30 years ago 40 years ago you'd see a A a sonnet, and that would mean something political to you. Um, This is going to be retro. This is going to be a a little bit academic. And you'd see something free verse or something even more fractured, and that would mean something kind of daring. And those things don't hold true anymore. Some of the most audacious poems are formal these days. Some of the most boring <laughs> toss-away poems seem to look like they're this postmodern experiment in something, and they're not. There's so much great work.
0: Yeah, I love that. Uh, I think that's totally true that there's a real variety in world poetry and American poetry. Um You talk about politics too. Did you see poetry contend with politics in different ways? Because, as you say, you have to write about the world around you. It's strange to avoid it uh, assiduously, but I would say there was a time in American poetry when there'd be debates like, can poetry be political? Is it allowed? You know, like who will come and stop us? I think that sounds to me like craziness now, but. You know, what do you make of the this moment, I guess?
1: I think there was a time when it was less common to find a political assertion in poems. But as I say that, then I think, well, Audre and Rich, Galway Connell, Ishmael Reed. Oh, I don't know, Walt Whitman.
0: <laughs> Audre Lorde, Langston Hughes. You know, we can go down a list of people, yeah.
1: It may be the case that poems with a really alert political or social narrative were fewer in number. Mm-hmm. And you almost worry now that there's people trying so much to write a kind of politically aware poem that they forgot the poem part. That's happening as well, too. Um, but, yeah, I I think one of the many doors that are open right now is is a poem for some astute social aptitude as part of the narrative of poem and not just its its deep background
0: well and I think that's one of the things circling back to your poem that I like about your poem a lot is that you have this we and a poet like Seamus Heaney to me is able to make himself culpable in whatever he's examining and critiquing, you know, he doesn't say I'm far away. He said, I will stand at the railing and connive in civilized outrage. Uh, That's a bad rendering of a beautiful line. But I think that's really important to have that kind of sense of the self not being distant and and kind of witnessing in a pure way, but witnessing in the sort of way that you're more than a bystander. You're also the poet looking. Uh, There's something about that complexity of that that I think the best writers try to wrestle with. And to me, in your poem, there's a feeling of the sorrow that isn't just the, the man, the boy, the anger. It's also the self uh, speaking through the sorrow for you know, a broader world that is in pieces.
1: You said the best word. You said the most accurate thing when you talked about culpability. That's the secret to writing, it seemed to me, A politically aware poem. I read a lot of politically driven poems that have no sense of guilt (laughs) or culpability that are merely about blame or accusation or the poet declaring he or she is the victim. Um, We have in us the capability to hurt somebody and to do harm. Not only that, we'll do it. There will come a time when we do it. Now, now write your poem knowing that um that you are complicit and culpable to whatever damages are being done and it's not enough as you said to stand off in the distance and name those damages or name those bad things you have to be right in the middle of it and um at least shouldering some of the blame well
0: That sounded very certain. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you you know what you're talking about. Um, I do think also there's a kind of, um, yeah, like I feel like this poet, the poet of six notes also knows that the next poem might be a different poem entirely, but also a poem that has a different perspective on the same thing. I don't know. There's something about your perspective shifting that I think is really powerful, too.
1: Um, that sounds great to me. I, I probably don't have much access to that since I'm, you know, I have one perspective on that. I, I would like to think
0: that that's true, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a beautiful poem, and thanks for sharing it with us. And thanks so much, David, for talking with us today.
1: It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you.
0: Six Notes by David Baker, as well as Stanley Plumley's In Passing, can be found on newyorker.com. Stanley Plumley's last book was Middle Distance. David Baker's most recent poetry collection is Whale Fall.
1: You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and the New Yorker app, available
0: from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner... By Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropadope.
1: The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses, with
0: help from Hannah Eisenman.
1: Hi, I'm Deborah Treesman, fiction editor of The New Yorker.